When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I am your host for today, Shatranjay Maul. Today I'm speaking with Professor Paul D. Barclay about his book, Outcasts of Empire, Japan's Rule on Taiwan's Savage Border, 1874 to 1945, which was published by the University of California Press in 2018. Professor Barclay is a professor of history at Lafayette College in Pennsylvania. His research interests include Japan and China, Indigenous Studies, Comparative Colonialism, and Visual Studies. So thank you for joining the podcast today, Paul. It's great to be here. I look forward to talking to you today. Um, So our first question is always biographical, so I'd like to ask you about your background. Where did you grow up, and how did you become a historian of East Asia, specializing in Japan and Taiwan? Well, thank you very much for having me, Shatranjay, and actually... I was born and raised quite a distance from East Asia in a small town in northern Illinois in the American Midwest on the shores of Lake Michigan. And Zion, Illinois, in terms of climate, material culture, and and other aspects, is really worlds away from Japan and Taiwan, the areas of the book we're discussing today. So from that perspective, um, you might call these places distant or even exotic places, at least to a young person in the era before internet connectivity. And I think I backed into this kind of a project because I was always interested in the peoples and places of the world, but in an an abstract sense. And I didn't actually become a scholar of Japanese history until I was in my early 30s. And it, it was a pretty winding path to get here, and I, I hope that sort of explains why the, the topics and the narrative in my book are a bit unorthodox for a historian of Japan. And I think it starts with these museum dioramas and these ethnological or ethnologically inspired exhibits 
that my uncle took me to in these museums in Chicago and Milwaukee, the, the big cities near where I grew up. And, and this kind of presentation of the world as a collection of, of colorful and interesting people with, with customs and different languages sort of dovetailed with, with things that young people did in the 70s. I collected stamps, for example. And, and I understand that this is a, a flawed view of the world in many ways, but it, it, is, um, it is something that can draw some people to, to the study of global history and interconnections and comparisons. So I didn't really plan to enter the university after high school, uh, but I couldn't really figure out how to make a living. So after doing a lot of kinds of wage labor and trying to be a rock musician, I entered the University of Wisconsin uh, as a slightly older student, someone who wanted to learn chemistry, but who really warmed up to the social sciences through lectures in anthropology. And I can really remember Dr. Brightman's lectures in this intro course back in 1984, actually. I can remember them to this day. And the university, at least for a person like me, from a small town, from a wage labor background, really opened up so many things. I lived in a cooperative with students from Liberia, China, Mexico, other places. I was able to study philosophy, the Russian language, political philosophy. It's, it's very intoxicating. And so I, I did drop out of school. And for a couple of years, I did construction work. I hitchhiked across Europe, as people did back then, kind of backpack tourism. And this really goes to the I think the heart of this book and what I study is that I got this job as a tutor in Rabat, Morocco. And I lived in North Africa for about six months. I studied Arabic in night school. I traveled. I, I went to Tunis. And this was my introduction to the history of colonialism, working and traveling in North Africa as an American and seeing the after effects of the colonial world so vividly. I mean, if you live in an expatriate community on the Atlantic Ocean and your neighbors have gardens, they have domestic help, they have spacious living quarters, and they're high school teachers, which is a noble profession, but maybe you shouldn't be earning so much more than the people that live around you. And, and cities like Rabat and Tunis have these modern cities that were built by colonial governments. They're still centers of capital but they have medinas or old cities. And it's a stark contrast between the way people live in the new city of Rabat, say, and how people might live in rural Morocco and Meknes or Fez. So I met many Tunisian, Algerian, and Moroccan men. This is in the late 80s who were migrant laborers in Europe. And so the, the, the stark inequality of, of wealth between Europeans in North Africa and North Africans or between North Africa and Europe really stood out to me as a young person. So I did get that, that idea in Rabat, Morocco, that getting a teacher's license would be a really great way to see the world, that I could go from these American schools to other American schools and see different places and peoples that way. So I went back to Madison, Wisconsin, 
I was readmitted to the university and I had a lot of ambition and I studied African history with Professor Catherine Green, who I'm still in touch with a lot. And Professor Alfred McCoy was teaching Southeast Asia at the time. And they brought me into the formal study of, of global systems and, and thinking about the world. You know, we read people like Edward Said and Benedict Anderson, Eric Wolf, Fernand Braudel, Wallerstein, Clifford Gertz. There was a lot there to give some substance and, and perhaps subtlety to, to this kind of riot of impressions I had had living in North Africa. And, you know, sort of getting closer to this book that I'm discussing today, I did a research seminar with Professor McCoy, which was called, it was called Empire in Southeast Asia. And it was a really broad survey of literature, but specific histories. And this book, Orientalism by Edward Said, it, it just resonated with me as somebody who had lived in North Africa amongst Europeans. And I came to believe that that, that was sort of what I had been embedded in. So I, I applied these new ideas to the documents of American imperialism in the Philippine Islands, and I was studying this knowledge power idea that was very popular in the late 1980s and early 1990s. And I won a fellowship at Madison uh, studying under Professor McCoy. And I got to go to Washington, D.C. and visit the National Archives. I went to Ann Arbor, Michigan. I went to the University of Minnesota and the State Historical Society. And as an undergraduate, I, I remember camping out sleeping in a car and in youth hostels to be able to afford this research. And it was very exciting. But I did not convert this interest in colonial anthropology and global systemic inequality and images of the, quote, capital O other. I could not convert that into a job teaching social studies in Wisconsin. Nobody wanted to hire me, unsurprisingly, in hindsight, so I, I was offered a job in Japan to teach English, and I went. I, I was ex an exciting idea. This was at a time in 1992 when Japan was relatively affluent. It was an economic powerhouse. And so I was in this nation state with, with different language, a lot of different material culture, and being in Japan and studying the Japanese language in night school sort of confirmed to me that I really wanted to pursue this idea of understanding the globe in, in some sort of systematic way. So I applied to graduate school in Minnesota because that's where the person I studied as an undergrad, a colonial anthropologist named Albert Ernest Jenks, that was his institution, and I had been to the archives there. So they gave me a fellowship, and I found out early in my graduate career that if I were to study Japan as a field, I could get a job. There were more jobs in Japanese history in the early 1990s than there were people to fill those jobs. And so 
I worked as a teaching assistant, as a lecturer, and, and took all of these courses in East Asian history, studied intensive Japanese every summer and during the semesters, like a lot of us did at that time. And I was able to earn that PhD in Japanese history by writing a comparative dissertation on U.S. imperialism in the Philippines and Japanese imperialism in Taiwan. That was my dissertation topic. So I, I realized that that might be a little bit more kind of background and autobiography than you're used to. But I, I think that the, the book I wrote and that we're discussing today is, is a bit odd in the sense that it, it it drags in all of these literatures, and, and that's the reason why. And since I've been at Lafayette College in 1999, I have been teaching world history, East Asian history, and, and a variety of topics. And so now I would consider myself very firmly to be an East Asianist. So, so thank you for that question. Thank you for sharing that. It's wonderful to hear about your journey to becoming an East Asianist, to, uh, your journey to becoming a historian, and how you were able to sort of incorporate all of those different frameworks of studying um, anthropology and colonial history and global history and apply that to the field of Japanese studies and East Asian studies. So it's, I think the field regains from uh, the perspective that you bring uh, through this book. So just uh, to ask you a little more about the book or like to sort of uh, begin the conversation about the book. Um, so um, from, my, from my experience of reading the book, I found it to be a deeply fascinating and engaging account of the encounter between Japan's empire and the indigenous peoples of Taiwan across the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Um, so you've already um, begun answering this, uh, but could you tell us a little more about how you came to write this book and what you see as its major arguments and contributions? Well, I appreciate those kind words, uh, it, it's, um It's gratifying, actually, when I hear that somebody has read this book. I, I did the best I could to make it reader-friendly, but it it has a lot in it. So I, first of all, congratulations for finishing it. Um, but, but seriously, this book grew out of research on the Philippine islands, which are geographically proximate to Taiwan. And one of the things that you learn if you study U.S. rule in the Philippines is that Americans made a very large cultural production out of their encounter with the ethnically diverse peoples of the Philippines highlands, particularly in Luzon. And like many highland peoples in Southeast Asia, there were Ipugao, Ilongat, and, and other folks called Igorots who were headhunters. And they were many other things too, but this feature of cultural life really arrested colonial people and it informed their production of photography, but also the exoticized Highland women, all of these peoples became objects, objects of fascination for American scientists, officials, but also the general public. Uh, these men and women were exhibited at the St. Louis Exposition in 1904, and they there was so much journalism and photography produced about them. And the colonial government even had its own bureau called the Bureau of Ethnology to sort of inventory, catalog, and act upon this knowledge. 
So while I was doing this work as an undergraduate, I noticed that there was correspondence, written correspondence between American officials and Japanese officials who were in Taiwan about this so-called headhunter problem. This is their language, not mine. And it turns out the Japanese colonizers demonstrated a similar kind of fascination with ethnic groups we would call Atayal, Paiwan, uh, Bunun, and other highland peoples in Taiwan, who also hunted heads, uh, among many other things. And so there's a, a kind of a parallelism here in the production of imagery. And these projects of the Americans and the Japanese have a lot of interesting sort of structural connections and analogs. But there's a big difference, and, and this is where I really want to begin with this book, and that is, is that the highlands of Taiwan were endowed with very large stands of camphor trees. And when one extracts crystals from this fragrant wood, it has many industrial uses. You can make smokeless gunpowder. You, you can make these plastics that are used from everything from hair combs to piano keys. And Japan just about had a monopoly on this after they conquered parts of Taiwan. So following in the steps of the Qing dynasty, the previous rulers of Taiwan, Japan launched a series of prolonged wars against the highland peoples of Taiwan. So in addition to producing this commercial and scholarly imagery about indigenous peoples, there was also this dedication of resources and soldiers to dedicate decades, decades of warfare against these highland peoples. So this was a much bigger story than what was happening next door in the Philippines. And so I left this comparative work behind to, to focus on Japan's colonial encounter with Taiwan's indigenous peoples, because when I happened upon this topic in the mid-1990s, there really wasn't much written on it in English, and the Japanese language scholarship was just starting to sort of ripen. And so this book is, is the fruition of a, a decade and a half of, of kind of working through that secondary literature in Japanese and the primary sources and, and trying to work up questions in a research design that could be used to make um, a coherent account of the formation of the modern world, if that doesn't sound too ambitious. But that, that was the, the thought. And so the major argument of the book then is that indigenous peoples are really very important protagonists in the creation of the modern world. And that any macro-level analysis of the formation and functioning of this modern world system, that is a, a world that features nation-states as dominant political units and industrial capitalism as a dominant mode of economic activity, if, if we're going to think about the emergence of this system in time, we have to grapple with the issue of indigeneity and indigenous peoples to tell this story. So in very broad strokes, you could say that this book is about how indigenous peoples have emerged in historical time in political spaces that, 
for various reasons, could not be brought into the fabric of national life. But at the same time, they could not be left as ungoverned peoples and territories as, as they had been in the early modern and pre-modern world. So to put this another way, this book is arguing that modernity's aspiration and archetype is a world whose inhabited spaces are exhausted by contiguous nation states whose central governments exercise a form of unitary sovereignty within these, these demarcated borders. But the reality is that most nation states can territories, administrative units, and border areas over which they exercise at best a kind of quasi-sovereignty. And, you know, the legal scholar Lauren Benton has written about this at length. It's a, it's a, it's a good concept um, that, that is dealt with in more in depth in the book. But these areas here are now referred to and governed and imagined and inhabited as indigenous places, so the formation of these units, this book argues, can teach us a lot about the formation of the modern world. And in Taiwan, under Japanese colonial rule, I refer to the indigenous peoples as the outcasts of empire, because these are the peoples and places that the Japanese empire could not enfold within the sort of aspirational horizontal spaces of sovereignty, which I deal with in a lot more detail. And, and we could talk about that further, if, if you like, um, later in the interview. But that's, that's kind of a thumbnail sketch of where the book comes from and the kind of claim it's trying to make. Thank you for sharing that. Um, and I, I can definitely see the significance of your book, not just for the fields of Japanese history and East Asian history, but also um, global history, because um, it, it's sort of a contribution to this field of indigenous studies, so like people in uh, people studying like um, uh, indigenous peoples in other parts of the world may also gain from the framework, uh, the theoretical framework um, that you use um, in your book. Um, so um, I'll come back to talking about um, uh, the, the book um, and um, the chapters uh, in a moment. But before that, um, I wanted to ask another question to you about your research. Um, so where did you do your research um, and what sorts of archives and sources did you use? Well, thanks for that question. This this must be the question that any historian loves to get, and almost nobody would want to listen to the answer. So um, I, I feel privileged, and I'll, I'll try to keep this um, succinct, if I if I might. I mean, this this re research really began in the Library of Congress and in the National Archives and Record Administration in College Park, Maryland, as I combed through the archives of the Bureau of Insular Affairs, the governing body of the U.S. Empire in the Philippines, but also in the Bureau of Ethnography Records at the Smithsonian Institute. And if we think about this kind of record keeping as, as a sort of backstory to the the functioning of empire at its at its very micro level and and move that over to Japan and start thinking about Taiwan, the sources of history will be somewhat similar. 
So the National Congressional Library in, in Tokyo is a good place to, to visit, to look for the government records, but also many, many of these colonial records from Taiwan have been reprinted in compendiums and the writing was edited by the colonial government and they're just called the Records of Indigenous Administration. And these give us a lot of details about the military activities, the policing activities, land tenure, and all of the things that go in to making territory parts of an empire. So one kind of resource is, is fairly traditional, and these are government-generated records, some generated for public consumption and some generated for internal correspondence. And as this project developed and, and lasted from the 1990s into the mid 2000 aughts and beyond, the manuscript records of the Taiwan government general, the raw materials, the written records became available online. At first you had to go to Taipei or to Nanto in Taiwan and access them from terminals. You could do it at Academia Sinica in Nangang, a, a suburb of Taipei, or you could go to the city of Nanto. It was a, a, a bit of a more forbidding archive, but now they're even available online from the United States. Of course, when I started this project, um, one had to go to Taiwan, and, and many of these records existed in photostat version in the basement of the Ethnological Institute at Academia Sinica um, as well. So there's a there's a lot of kinds of official documents that are available on Japanese imperial rule in Taiwan because the Japanese were inveterate record keepers. And, and so that's the first sort of batch of records. But I was very interested in popular culture, journalism, and photography. So a very unusual sort a primary source that you'll find in this book are postcards. And after I became a professor of history at Lafayette College, I became a digital archivist. And I edit an online archive, which is open access, the East Asia Image Collection. And I have about 7,000 postcards on that archive that I've annotated and sorted out. And, and those began with donations from people that knew I was working on Taiwan studies. And this turned into a back door for me studying the visual culture of imperialism and turning that into to a way to think about the material culture of exchange, display, and identity formation. So we would call those kinds of resources ephemera. These are articles that were generated for commercial value and not really meant to be archived, but now they are archived, not, not just at Lafayette College, but in other places. Um, newspapers are important. In the early 20th century, when Japanese published newspaper articles about encounters with indigenous peoples, they didn't self-censor themselves. They weren't doing anything that they thought was particularly shameful, even if it was violent and abusive or racist by our standards. This, the, these journalists 
were particularly fascinated in the interior. And when I began this research, all of that was microfilm. You went into a microfilm at Keio University, or I, I went to Doshisho University, different places in, in Japan where I could get borrowing rights, and you, and you read microfilm. Um, that's, a, that's a big part of the book as well. And, and then lastly, I would say that a historian that wants to do work on indigenous peoples is probably going to have a hard time in this period of time finding that elusive so-called indigenous voice. And so that means taking an eclectic approach to source material and, and looking for um, bits of subjectivity and agency amongst the, the kind of ocean of official pronouncements. So I, I think that's really all I can say about sources without sort of going into an exposition of each source, which I, I think is not what you're looking for. So thank you for that question. Thank you for sharing that. Um, so in the introduction to the book, you present some of the major theoretical interventions of the book. Um, so you discuss this concept of indigenous modernity um, and position the encounter between the Japanese imperial nation state and indigenous Taiwanese co um, communities within um, general transformations in sovereignty in East Asia during the late 19th century. Um, so could you tell us a little more about this? Uh, yes, I think the pivotal concept here is the linkage that I make between Foucault's or Michel Foucault. He's a, a French literary scholar, philosopher, um, not a historian, but but an important thinker. So this man, Michel Foucault, devised this notion of governmentality, which is interpreted various ways, but it is a spatial logic of the nation-state system that became ascendant in the Atlantic world of the late 19th century, or really the post-Napoleonic world. And in some of the Pacific world, especially within the Japanese nation-state and empire. And I was inspired by the geography, Matthew Hanna's reading of Foucault. And for Hanna, the modern nation-state to create this self-policing yet productive citizenry, a citizenry that is, is controlled but not overly controlled, this project is termed by Matthew Hanna as the mastery of territory. And nation states master territory by engaging in these related projects in cartography, census taking, transport, and legal infrastructure. And what Hannah emphasizes and what I emphasize in the book is that there are significant cost outlays and resistance and frictions to these projects. And it is actually, when you look at it historically, the fact that nation states even came close to mastering territory is an improbability. But the aspiration is important. And the goal here, through the mastery of territory, is to distribute a particular kind of sovereignty evenly and throughout the clearly delimited territory of a nation state. So in Outcasts of Empire, I argue that Imperial Japan's initial push to administratively unify Taiwan 
for the purpose of increasing its productive capacity, but in a way that does that, that doesn't exceed the cost of governing the colony, this exemplifies this process, the mastery of territory or the implementation of Foucauldian governmentality. So the colonial state actually had limited success in the territories of Taiwan that had formerly been governed by the Qing dynasty and that were inhabited by Han Taiwanese or the descendants of immigrants from Fujian province and Guangdong province in Taiwan. These spaces approached what Foucault termed a disciplinary society, a society which in surplus wealth can be rendered, but at a cost to the government that is less than the value that can be extracted. But that was not true in the interior of Taiwan. In the interior of Taiwan, what comes to pass is that the Japanese government exercises a strategy that Foucault would just call the regime of punishment, an early modern, an early modern form of statecraft that is pretty careless of interiority and infrastructure development and, and heavy on physical displays of power, punitive campaigns, uh, demonstrations of raw violence, um, indiscriminate campaigns that that catch up collateral damage. So, so these very imprecise and costly forms of rule that, that don't produce the kind of citizen subject who would voluntarily, voluntarily put their labor and their heart and soul into the life of a nation state or the extraction of wealth by a, an administrative body, these peoples end up, I argue, being indigenous peoples. Now, had it been Taiwanese rule under the Qing dynasty, and, and Taiwan was ruled in part by the Qing dynasty from 1684 right up to 1895, these peoples were verily, variously referred to as barbarians or savages or, or people beyond the pale, and, and the government didn't do much about them except try to maintain a, a boundary line. But modern nation states don't do that. They don't recognize the concept of ungoverned spaces, and yet they lack the capacity to fully govern spaces in this modern way. So the the notion of indigenous modernity then, to, to get to the heart of your question, is that there is this space that is co-created with disciplinary spaces, and, and here is um, a, a kind of a dialectic relationship be between the project of an incomplete modernity, one that is spiritually unsatisfactory because it it only promises material progress and this excluded other, which becomes from the side of the colonizer, a repository of, of fantasies and, and wishes and, and nightmares that are all folded into the image of, of the headhunter and, and the savage. So that's kind of the heart 
of indigenous modernity as it is as it emerges in this colony and in this particular historical study. Thank you. That's really fascinating. And as I was listening to you, I was reminded of something you said earlier about the forces that sort of created the modern world. Um, so um, your, your book is sort of telling us something um, um, that happened in East Asia, but was like sort of like part of a broader um, phenomenon across um, the world. Um, so, so that was really interesting. Thank you. Um, so um, I actually had another question um, about uh, Japan's encounter with the Taiwanese indigenous peoples. And I think this is something you mentioned briefly in the introduction. Um, so how does Japan's encounter with the Taiwanese indigenous people compare with, say, their um, um, interactions with other with peoples in other colonies, such as maybe the, the encounter with the peoples of Korea, for example, who they also colonized? Well, there's some interesting parallels, I think. I mean, we have this idea of, well, let's talk about Korea first. That's sort of a, a major colony. And we can think, of e. e. Taylor Atkins has written this book called Primitive Selves. And it very eloquently explains that how Japanese rule in Korea, while it had this very violent edge, it, it was essentially about money and resources and a, and a kind of an overpowering technological dominance. It also produced in metropolitan Japan and within large cities in Korea, a production of an authentic Korean folk life in, in the form of music, but also in the form of visual culture that was co-produced with this empire and, and created a, a sort of Korea for scientific and commercial consumption that was at once primitive and modern. It was primitive in that it was supposed to be ahistorical, pristine, and authentic, but it was absolutely modern and that it was a product of the age of mechanical reproduction, in this case, uh, re commercial recordings. But in the case of Taiwan, it could be commercial photography or museum exhibits. So that, that sort of conflation of modernity and authenticity can be found in that project. But what makes Korea very different is that Taiwan is really administratively bifurcated between an indigenous territory that is ruled by a regime of punishment and a flatland or sort of rice-growing territory and urban territories in Taiwan that are governed more like most of Korea would be. So, so Korea isn't as bifurcated. Of course, the country is different than the city. But if we go up to Manchukuo or, or Manchuria and, and think about Prasenjit Duwada's book, uh, Authenticity and Sovereignty, I mean, Sovereignty and Authenticity, we can see another parallel project with the Orochin people um, on the borderlands of, of Mongolia, where Japanese ethnologists and culture producers sort of fastened upon a, a smaller population and, and held them up as exemplars of, of this Arcadia at the same time that the government 
was dispossessing their land and making their lives economically impoverished. So, so this sort of tandem process of economic immiseration and ideological sort of elevation uh, occurs in, in different parts of the empire with, with different balances of resource allocation and strategic significance. But I, I do think we can find this in different places in the empire, and, and we always allow for um, local specificities. Thank you. Um, so now I'd like to shift gears and um, sort of ask you sequentially about the four chapters of the book. Um, so in the in the first chapter, um, your narrative begins um, actually two decades before uh, Japan's formal colonization of Taiwan in 1895 um, with a shipwreck um, and followed by an invasion in the early 1870s. Um, so many of our listeners may not be familiar with this history. So could you tell us a little bit about this historical period and the position of Taiwan's indigenous peoples as uh, Japan undertook the, this policy of imperial adventurism, uh, imperial adventurism um, in East Asia. Sure. The 1874 in, invasion of southern Taiwan by Japan is the Japanese empire's first foreign war. Um, Robert Iskildson has just published a very good history of this encounter, which is the authoritative um, statement. So I would point readers uh, to Professor Iskildson's scholarship to get the nuts and bolts of this encounter. It it's prominent it's prominent in my book because I propose that the encounters that surround this invasion can teach us how disarticulated the global system was in 1874 when the Qing were governing most of Taiwan. This is treaty port capitalism. In 1860, the British and the French win a second opium war against the Qing dynasty and Taiwan has two treaty ports. So foreign trade becomes prominent in Taiwan, and that brings ships, and that brings shipwrecks. And so the 1874 expedi expedition, Japan in Taiwan, looking for people that murdered 54 Ryukyu Islanders, we can call them Okinawans for shorthand, but they're from a different part of Okinawa Prefecture by 1874 terminology, the Japanese are committed to a punitive expedition to look for these malefactors because they're disrupting global trade, because they're obstacles to the smooth functioning of the circulation of material, but also the circulation of information. So the 1874 expedition to Taiwan basically sees about 3,600 Japanese troops, most of them from Kyushu. They go to Taiwan for a couple of months. They burn down a bunch of huts. About 550 of them die of malaria. Most of them are laborers. Japan retreats. They, they kill some Taiwanese. And they show in the documentary record leading up to this that Taiwan 
was built out of a bunch of incommensurate jurisdictions. And it was very difficult to get information from southern Taiwan to coastal subcapitals to places like Xiamen in the Qing dynasty. And then information would have to travel to Beijing and then to a U.S. council who might be in Xiamen or Beijing. And so this was no way to manage the circulation of capital, not only in Taiwan, but but anywhere in the world of the 1860s and 1870s, because there wasn't national sovereignty. There weren't these unified spaces through which people, information, and goods could circulate. That was the aspiration. And, and the world that I illustrate at the beginning of the book with 1874 is, is a disarticulated world where indigenous peoples are really external to the system and um, require a lot of time and specificity to barter with, to negotiate with. Um, and that is a world of low velocity capitalism. That kind of world is not conducive to the, the facilitation of large volumes and large velocities of resource extraction, distribution, and reassemblage. Thank you. Um, so in the next chapter, um, you, you talk about uh, Japan's management of um, uh, Taiwanese um, indigenous linguistic diversity. Um, so it, like Taiwan's indigenous communities were linguistically diverse. Um, and after colonizing the island, the Japanese needed to find ways to manage this linguistic pluralism as they established control. Um, so could you tell us about um, how um, Japan's management of uh, Taiwanese indigenous linguistic diversity um, influenced the formation of, um, you know, um, the Taiwanese indigenous identity? Uh, yes. So the, the basic argument here is that we can look at the material and intellectual patrimony of government anthropology during the colonial period is a sort of top-down ethnogenesis, a sort of an official nationalism for indigenous peoples that is constructed by these early 20th century colonial bureaucrats and university scientists and commercial image producers. And what I mean by that is that when Japanese officials and commercial actors go to the interior of Taiwan, they have many methods of dealing with indigenous peoples to get at timber and other natural resources because the Qing dynasty did that. But, but these methods require that indigenous peoples remain politically autonomous more or less. And so when the Japanese state tries to end that autonomy so that it doesn't have to bargain with so many individual and, and fragmented political formations, the thing that it does, it does what other colonial states do. They make a simplified map of the diversity of Taiwan that sort of looks like nation state units. That's the ethos they have, and they project that onto this territory. They fill that map in 
with they propose that that these languages are coterminous with these polygons that they impute to this territory, and then they attach religions and life ways and this whole ensemble of cultural practices. And so from the colonial side, they're sort of constructing these nations in the indigenous territory, but they're doing it in a very particular way. They are not establishing title to land. They are not establishing financial instruments. They are not building certain kinds of schools and industries. So what I'm saying is, is that this encounter with indigenous peoples, it has an economic and a bureaucratic side, but it also has a culturally productive side. And that does not translate into indigenous peoples thinking of themselves the way the Japanese people imagine them to be, at least in the short run. But by the end of Japanese colonial rule, the state has produced language dictionaries and taxonomies and maps that can be recovered in the post-colonial world as, as resources for rights recovery, land recovery, and restorative justice. And so there's a, a complicated interplay between expedients that were used for statecraft for products that were produced for their commercial value and the configuration of the post-colonial world where indigenous peoples, as people that were dispossessed, in in some sense have to use the language of territorial sovereignty to to recover um, a space of rights recovery. And and that is provided in in the patrimony of this record keeping. And, And so that's what that's what that chapter is is trying to communicate. Thank you. Um, yeah, listening to you, I was just reminded of something else that you talked um, about in the book about uh, one of your interventions being um, that uh, instead of just seeing um, the formation of these indigenous identities as like a, something that happened in the 1960s, there's like a longer history and tracing it back to um, the period of um, colonialism. So as I was listening to you um, speaking, I was just reminded of that aspect um, of um, formation of indigenous uh, cultural identity. Um, So in chapter three, uh, you discuss gift giving as part of exchanges between Taiwanese indigenous peoples, the Japanese and other groups in Taiwan. Um, So could you tell us a little more about this history of gift exchanges, preservation of objects and what it tells us about the formation and transformations of uh, Taiwanese indigenous identity? So this is a very delicate area because I don't want to leave your listeners with the impression that people came to Taiwan from Japan and taught indigenous peoples who they were or sort of created this kind of Andersonian imagined community for people who didn't already know who they were. That that could be an incorrect reading of this kind of scholarship. What does happen is a very complicated interplay of material objects and identities. And I I really think that Nicholas Thomas, the anthropologist's work on entangled objects, which really was inspiring to me, 
is 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 something that readers could look at if if they were interested in this topic. But the way I treat it is is that there are a series of after effects of gift giving and trade that allow particular objects to become enduring symbols of ethnic integrity and that these objects can be drawn upon in multiple contexts today and used in different ways than than they were a century ago, but that we can find threads of continuity over time. So to be less abstract, when Japanese and, and Qing era Chinese people went to the interior of northern Taiwan and wanted to trade or to travel, they had to present gifts to people. They were not sovereign there. And, and these gifts would often be manufactured goods. It could be gunpowder. It could be bullets. It could be machine woven cloth. It could be distilled alcohol. Uh, it could be jewelry, metal goods, brass. And in return, they would get woven, hand-woven blankets or claws with geometric patterns on them. And, and these were prestige goods within Taiwanese society, but they became ethnological specimens or tourist goods in a Japanese economy. And so then the Taiwan economy is going to shift subtly to produce tourist goods. But the material is going to sh- shift because now they're going to be able to use imported chemical dyes. And then that's going to produce a shift in aesthetic tastes within indigenous societies. So back and forth between producers, people who wear the goods, their meaning within local social reproduction, their meaning for metropolitan consumers, these this interpenetration of trade, display, manufacture, and identity continues from the, the initial points of contact in the late 19th century world um, into the 21st century. But that is not to say that indigenous people in Taiwan today identify themselves primarily as weavers or wood carvers or producers of any of these cultural artifacts, but they do make for a a touchstone uh, as a way for indigenous peoples to to kind of communicate a group integrity to outsiders. Uh, People who study indigenous politics will say time and again that with this incredible power asymmetry between indigenous peoples and settler colonists, indigenous peoples are often, um, they have to make the strategic decision of presenting themselves in ways that can be understood by non-indigenous peoples if that makes sense. And so this gift giving, which turns it into a form of commercial activity and then turns into a form of identity consolidation uh, are the different layers of this history that I try to get at in the book by making a close look at red cloth and indigenous identity. So in chapter four, uh, you discuss Japanese ethnological and ethnographic studies of Taiwanese indigenous peoples during the colonial period um, and the ways in which these have been subsequently used. 
So could you tell us a little more about these cultural imaginaries and representations of indigenous Taiwanese and the legacies that it has left behind um, in subsequent years? Yes. I think my first sort of intuition and, and breakthrough on this topic came when I was doing my research for my dissertation in Taiwan. It must have been around 1995 or 1996 before they had an underground metro in in Taipei. And so I was riding these buses around at night and I wasn't very good at, at Taiwanese geography. And I, I got off the bus and I was in the wrong part of town. And this was just serendipity. I was by a very large bookstore. So I went in and it was just at the time in Taiwanese history when these compendia of colonial era Japanese books were being reproduced in facsimile version. And so I was in this bookstore looking at them. And what stood out is that people in Taiwan were very willing to purchase these huge Japanese photograph albums of indigenous peoples. Well, as I revisited Taiwan over the years, it, it visited museums or villages and, and territories where indigenous people live today in different places, these pictures that the Japanese took between 1903 and going down to the late 1930s, they're everywhere in Taiwan. If you've been studying them, you, you notice them more than maybe other people do. And so one of the legacies of the ethnographic encounter, and I, I really want to emphasize this in the book and in, in this discussion that we're having is not the science of ethnography, not a scientific study of kinship or succession or land use, but the ethnologically inspired commercial products of this ethnographic imagination, this idea that peoples are authentic and they're not changed at all, that they're timeless, that they exist sort of outside of the flow of time, that can be a sort of a denigrating view, but it can also be an empowering view. And, and that has become one of the legacies of, of this production because it does give non-Indigenous peoples this resource for thinking about the world as a place that's not completely disenchanted, but it also gives apologists for assimilation and for dispossession the kind of resources to say these people aren't modern, they need to be changed. And it also provides us with a picture of indigenous life as resting on this substrate of distinction of kind of national distinction, which in fact exists. Nobody invented these different languages, but they were repackaged in a certain way and, and made amenable to preservation and reproduction. So if you go to Taiwan and, and, and look at maps of, of the indigenous territory that are produced by the, the government or others, they look strikingly like maps produced in the Japanese colonial period, but they are put to much different usages. So there's continuity and there's discontinuity. 
Thank you. That's really fascinating um, to hear. Um, and it's really, it was also great to hear about how that chance encounter with those books sort of led you to writing a, a chapter of your book. Um, so you end your book by discussing the extent to which Japanese colonialism influenced and shaped how indigenous territory was viewed as a, a quote, um, second order geobody, unquote, within Taiwan. And I think you've just touched upon it um, in your previous answer. Um, so could you tell us a little more about this? Um, and secondly, um, although you do not cover the post-1945 history of Taiwan in the book, for those of our listeners who may be interested, could you comment on the post-war history and status of Taiwan's indigenous peoples? Sure. I think I'll start with this notion of a second-order geobody. So um, a historical geographer from Thailand named Tong Chai Winachakul wrote this important book called Siam Mapped. Siam is the old name for Thailand. And in that book, the concept of a geobody is developed. And a geobody is a is a sort of logo of a nation state. People recognize the silhouette of their nation states instinctively. So if, if you see the logo of India or Brazil or Taiwan or Cuba, uh, it will have this sort of emotional resonance with modern people. But it also shows that that ideally, these are clearly demarcated territories within which sovereignty is extended, but then it stops at the edge. So this geobody that Tong Chai theorizes in Siam Map is something that's developed in the late 19th century as nation states sort of adjudicate their borders in response to the proliferation of trade border disputes and and modern warfare and, and this notion of territory being, as, as Anderson always says, sort of limited. The nation state is is limited and it's it's very carefully limited. So these geobodies in Asia and Southeast Asia, particularly and in Africa, are often formed as a product of colonialism and the boundaries of nation states, as, as many people know, were often have their origins in these colonial maps. And then in the post-colonial era, in the post-1960 dispensation, these geobodies become sovereign nation states, often, more or less. But in Taiwan's indigenous territories, we have the same sorts of polygons, the same sorts of geobodies, formally speaking. They're delimited. They're colored in with different shades. They look like sort of national structures, but they've never been sovereign and they still aren't. And yet they are not um, sort of external to the system. So in this book, a second order geobody is an indigenous territory that has undergone the experience of modern colonial war rule and that, and that has some of the geographic and administrative features of a nation state, but has no sovereignty and has no potential 
under the world order to ever having sovereignty. So it has many of the drawbacks of territorial nationalism without very many of the benefits. And and I, I wanted to formulate this idea, and this will get to the second part of your question about the post-1945 world, because these colonial states did alter the political geography of indigenous territories in, in particular ways that reflected the, the high modernism of nation-state construction, but the states did not extend into these territories. And the post-colonial era is in many ways the post-colonial state in Taiwan's case attempt to, to kind of grapple with this legacy. So Taiwan has been a post-colony since 1945 and until today. That's that's nearly that's over 70 years. So that's longer than the period Japan was there. So that that period of history for indigenous peoples is much longer and much more fraught than the period I studied. So I, I wouldn't care to summarize it exactly, but I, I think the legacy, the, the one that endures is how to deal with this massive encounter with imperialism that dispossessed so many people in such a short period of time and left them both for good and for ill beyond the bounds of modern sovereignty with this more intensive policing, but also with this more intensive forms of social welfare distribution. So, so that's how I see this history sort of being adjacent to a post-colonial history and, and maybe giving people interested in the contemporary world um, something to work with there. Absolutely. That's a really intriguing point. Um, and um, I think it's a very innovative um, use of the a concept of the geobody, um, uh, which you uh, you sort of built on what Tong Chai Winner Chuckles uh, book to sort of use this um, for like um, a community like the indigenous communities of Taiwan. And I feel like um, just speaking again to sort of the wider um, applicability of your book, like I think um, scholars studying other post colonies or um, other countries might find um, this intriguing and maybe can sort of um, other people can sort of think about second order geo bodies um, in other contexts in other uh, post colonial nation states. Um, so thank you, Paul, for taking so much time from your busy schedule to talk with me today. Uh, before we end, may I ask you what you're working on right now and what's next for you? Well, it's been really nice to talk with you about this this book, and I appreciate your good questions. I'm currently working on a book about Japan's counterinsurgency wars in Taiwan, in Korea, in Northeast China, and this is a in in some ways a continuation of my interest in in the sort of rough edges of the modern nation state system. Um, and that's that's been um, a, a daunting project. And I have a book coming out in the spring about one of the Japanese men who spent his whole life in Taiwan named Kondo Katsusaburo. And that book will be a history of the 
the Musha Rebellion of 1930 that that occurred in Taiwan. So so these projects are are sort of offshoots of of the book. Thank you. Um, uh, so I really look forward to um, reading your next book, I and mean, I also hope our readers. Um, read your this book, um, Outcasts of Empire, and then they look forward um, to reading um, your next book when it's um, published um, in um, a few months in the spring. I should add that, that this book, Outcasts of Empire, is an open access book by the University of California Press. It can be read in JSTOR or Kindle or on the California website at no cost. Um, I, I was able to raise money to make that book available to anybody that cares to look at it. So that's that's just a, a point of fact. Oh yes, uh, thank you for sharing that. Um, I mean, for for um, people um, across the world, uh, especially those who can't afford to purchase um, um, some of the academic books, that's like a great blessing um, that your book is available um, via open source. Um, so uh, thank you. Um, so um, th- this was an interview with uh, Professor Paul D. Barclay about his book Outcasts of Empire: uh, Japan's Rule on Taiwan's Savage Border, eighteen seventy. Uh, to 1945, which was published uh, by the University of California Press in 2018. Um, And as Professor Barclay mentioned, uh, the book is available for open access um, online. Um, So um, you you can go to the University of California uh, uh, Press website um, and access the book. Um, So thank you, Paul. You're welcome.